Welcome to Food Focus, a weekly companion to the Retail Focus podcast. Each show will discuss news, issues, and product releases in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. Here are your hosts, Trent Kling and Leighton Kling. Welcome to this episode of the Food Focus podcast with Trent and Leighton Kling. Some positive earning results to talk about. We'll also discuss the egg industry once more as CalMain Foods gives their earnings and we provide a Kroger Lidl legal update. We lead with McDonald's here and McDonald's kind of sets the trend for this earnings season with some positivity that lays to rest any talk whatsoever of a restaurant recession. Part of the reason we mentioned the restaurant recession is about a year ago that Stiefel came out with that note written by Paul Westra, who's since moved on to become the CFO at IPIC Entertainment. But it's fairly clear at this point that a restaurant recession industry-wide is not happening. This is driven home especially by McDonald's earnings as they beat analyst expectations across all fronts. This really does signify that the restaurant recession is no more, although you and I, Trent, had questioned whether or not We were even in a restaurant recession because a lot of big name QSRs and a lot of local restaurants were actually doing pretty well over the last year or two. This earnings call was for the period ending June 30th and was on July 25th, 2017. It was for their second quarter fiscal 2017. You see a lot of positivity surrounding this earnings call. McDonald's, obviously a bellwether for the QSR industry. And you see that The positivity stemmed largely from comparable store sales increases and a big jump in operating income, which contributed to obviously very healthy earnings per share numbers for this operator. Comparable store sales were up a whopping 6.6% globally over the second quarter of 2016. Analysts, on the other hand, were expecting just a 4% increase, which you and I were really targeting as a healthy increase if you include their growing international segments. But overall, this number was a function of increases in traffic, what they call guest counts at McDonald's corporate, across all their platforms with mixed movement regarding ticket and transaction size. Now, we should mention that their domestic or U.S. segment only saw comps up 3.9%. They credited their annual cold beverage value promotion, their 32-ounce tea or soft drink for just $1.00 and their signature crafted premium sandwich platform. And we'll talk about that a bit later and how that's been performing. But analysts expected here in the United States a 3.2% increase. So you see that 0.8% beat there. And that was via consensus metrics. Their international lead segment, which includes Canada and most parts of Europe, saw comps up 6.3%. And lastly, their high growth segment, China and Hong Kong, of course, which we're seeing comps close to 10%, saw comps up to 7%. Their foundational markets and corporate segment, which is Japan and corporate stores, saw comps up a whopping 13%, which really should be swapped with their high growth segment notation. But we note strong performance there in Japan overall. Their system-wide sales were up 8%, but this is in constant currencies owing mostly to those increased comps, but a slight increase in the number of overall stores. However, consolidated corporate revenues did fall 2% in constant currencies. But again, that's due to refranchising, something they're trying to target. Even though a lot of McDonald's locations are already franchised, they're continuing on with their refranchising, which means lesser top-line revenue, 
but in the end, a more efficient operating process and more earnings per share numbers. Overall, $6.05 billion in that consolidated corporate revenue versus analyst estimates of $5.96 billion. Speaking of that operating income, up 26% system-wide on a constant currency basis, thanks in part to strategic charges levied against this last year's second quarter balance sheet. That operating income contributed to earnings per share that came in at $1.70 per share versus analyst consensus estimates this quarter of $1.62. Adjusted earnings per share came in at $1.73 per share. This was up overall 5% for U.S. outlets. The three reasons given primarily increased margins on the franchise level, general and admin cost savings, and you see that higher gains on restaurant sales referencing to that refranchising, and then up 13% on a constant currency basis in the international lead segment, higher margins, 28% hike in the high growth segment with accounting changes, and significant, what they called significant increases in foundational markets and the corporate segment. But we transferred to the earnings call where we were able to really delve into the nitty gritty details that the management were discussing that wasn't highlighted in some of the bigger media outlets and some of the press releases that you may or may not see out there. Some interesting facts regarding some of the most recent promotions and some of the things they have going on for the rest of the year. Yeah, as we like to say, we listened to the earnings call so that you wouldn't have to. Basically, we can distill that information down for the rest of this story. And one of the things that media outlets chose to focus on was kind of parroting what McDonald's had said in their press release, crediting these dollar and two dollar drinks and the premium sandwiches for this boost in both top and bottom line numbers. But how much of this increase is truly a product of these? And as you look into the details and were on the earnings call, it became clear that one reason was perhaps a little more important than the other. For starters, they offered $1 cold drinks last summer, which would have been 2016 quarter two, but not the $2 smoothies and McCafe drinks. So this $2 smoothie and McCafe drinks, kind of their premium drink line, cutting those down to $2, they feel like helped to drive a little bit more traffic, as did frozen goods, including frozen lemonades at some of their franchises. However, the company might be on to something a little bit more with the premium sandwiches. As we discussed last month, diners might be tiring of the $10 hamburger at fast casual restaurants. We've cited a couple of different articles and informal studies regarding consumer sentiment about the increased cost of the fast casual burger. And it could be that this newfound perception of quality with this signature crafted line that McDonald's has using a number of ingredients, including pico guacamole and sriracha sauce, might be bringing some of these customers that are tiring of that $10 menu back to McDonald's. After all, these sandwiches have a high price point for McDonald's, around $4.99 to $5.49, but they're still about 50 to 75% of the price of a lot of fast casual chains. So McDonald's does have an edge on some fast casuals, and we turn to the earnings call to find out more details regarding how they felt like this premium stance would benefit McDonald's in the future. They brought Kevin M. Ozan on the earnings call, and he noted that having both the value and premium offers on the menu with little in between has been received well by customers, meaning basically that customers are both focusing on the value proposition and the premium quality proposition being offered up now at McDonald's. It's not quite a complete image refresh for McDonald's. 
but it's just a tweak in their menu. And when you think about where we've heard this type of concept before, we can go right to that barbell menu that's been referenced by both Arby's and Del Taco. Both of those chains and now McDonald's have all had success with this barbell menu concept. And for McDonald's, that top end of the barbell menu is impacted positively by this signature crafted line. It's hard not to see this as the QSR model of the future or at least the next two to three years because Arby's, Del Taco, McDonald's, they're all having success in comparison to other QSRs. And looking at other QSRs, successful restaurant operators, including Wendy's and Domino's, also have a similar type of barbell menu platform where you look at Subway, Burger King, Taco Bell. Those aren't necessarily completely stagnating, but they aren't seeing the success of some of the other operators. And those, the Subway, the Burger King, and Taco Bell of the world, they either have a value proposition or a premium proposition, but they've struggled to include both. And this might be building into some of their smaller same-store sales numbers or, in certain circumstances, negative same-store sales numbers. However, there is a word of warning as it pertains to McDonald's. And they said during the earnings call that despite the fact that they don't have a permanent value proposition, they're able to use seasonality to create a value proposition for their audience. And one would have to think that McDonald's will have to create something on a little bit more of a permanent basis. We've talked in the past about their 2-4 menu that's been adopted by multiple franchisees. They don't really have anything on a nationwide corporate level as a value proposition on a consistent basis. Everything is driven by seasonality, and you wonder if they're going to need to adopt a value platform soon to make sure that that barbell menu is at least a semi-permanent part of McDonald's. Most of the earnings call was spent reading pre-prepared statements, of course, but they talked a lot and extensively about the in-store customer experience, including table service and self-service kiosks, particularly in international markets. And one of the things that I found interesting was they mentioned higher labor costs, not only with wage increases, but also with increased staffing investments that were necessitated for mobile and online ordering fulfillment. This is something that Starbucks failed to do, and it caused throughput issues throughout the chain. So it's good on McDonald's to sniff this out before damage was done. They note very positive consumer sentiment regarding not only the self-service kiosks, but some of these other digital services that McDonald's is beginning to offer to their customers. They call these digital means of McDonald's access velocity accelerators, basically suggesting that it increases the speed at which customers are able to access McDonald's. And they noted the difficulty in adopting these across all markets versus, say, their all-day breakfast and all-day breakfast 2.0 rollouts. Driving consumer behavior specifically was a term that came up several times in reference to these digital velocity accelerators during this conference call. They did mention after an analyst question regarding speed of service declines at McDonald's that their speed of service does indeed continue to decline. It's incrementally and very small, but it has necessitated the increase in rollout of these digital products. However, according to McDonald's data, the speed of service decline they've seen recently has not resulted in a low consumer sentiment. And what's more is they've been able to delve into the speed of service decline and find that it's taking place during peak hours. Slow hours have not been affected by speed of service. They feel like kiosks will help that throughput and help to streamline things in the front of the store during peak hours such that they can get that speed of service down over time. 
quick delivery note, as delivery is something that's been in the news often for McDonald's. During the call and late in the Q&A section of the call, they said early delivery data is suggesting, and although it is early on, it's difficult to know exactly how much of this is taking place, but it's suggesting that delivery customers were largely not McDonald's customers in the first place. Instead, McDonald's has become a substitute as they take advantage of delivery instead of just eating at home. And I think this is a positive sign, not only for McDonald's, but all QSRs across the country as they look at how McDonald's piloted delivery program is working, it seems to be suggesting that people are choosing now to order from McDonald's rather than just eating at home. This is enabling McDonald's to grow the overall QSR market share that's available out there. But it should also allow other QSR operators to do the same thing in their individual markets. Now, again, it's early in the program, and it's going to be difficult to tell exactly where these customers are coming from until McDonald's gets more data. But I think that was an interesting note that they touched on during the earnings call. And they also touched on something that obviously we've been very concerned about over the last few months, which is food inflation. And food inflation is something we've talked about over the last couple of months. And when you relate it to McDonald's and their operating business inside the United States, no one buys more food than them as far as restaurants are concerned. So it's valid to use McDonald's as an overall barometer for food inflation. We mentioned last month how they purchase a large or huge portion of eggs in the United States each year. Actually, one of the leading buyers in that particular industry, an industry that we're about to delve in in our second story. But so far, the company is reporting no food inflation yet. Ozan said through the first two quarters of the year, food costs are actually flat compared to with the first two quarters of last year. That said, he did mention that they expect slight inflation of food costs in the next couple of quarters. And with a more pronounced rise in the fourth quarter in particular, still expecting food inflation of 0.5 to 1.5% over fiscal year 2016 for the entirety of 2017. So averaged out, you're seeing numbers not really looking that poor for McDonald's. Obviously, they have a lot of longer term contracts that really hedges against a lot of inflationary measures, a lot of things that could be happening that could hurt certain industries, especially the meat and poultry industries. But they could see inflation around 3% for the fourth quarter because this is the quarter where last year they had some meaningful commodity benefits. They said during the last two quarters of last year, they had some really good pricing inputs. And so the increases in Q3 and Q4 may be a little bit more pronounced this year over what other competing QSRs might see. They are attempting to get out in front of inflation through preemptive pricing increases, however, you see it with menu prices in increases there with full menu pricing coming up 1.8% in the second quarter. But overall, still below food away from home inflation, which is at 2.2% due largely to increased labor costs. Something Kroger had noted in their last earnings report is the higher wage increases and the more money it takes to staff their locations. But they did mention that despite looming inflation, they are committed to having a value platform. So you see those modest full menu pricing increases, but the company in McDonald's is still trying to hedge against that and really trying to still offer those value menus. And that's something that they're going to continue to have as they roll out and roll on through the rest of the year. 
Let's move on to that egg industry that Leighton mentioned. On Monday, CalMain Foods reported fourth quarter earnings that missed analyst expectations in a number of ways. And we highlight this story because in the same way McDonald's is a bellwether for the QSR industry, CalMain serves as an important bellwether for the U.S. shell egg industry. We haven't covered this company in the past, but they're headquartered in Jackson, Mississippi, and they are the nation's largest shell egg producer by volume. They distribute in nearly all areas of the continental United States, with the only areas of white space coming by way of the northeast and northwestern parts of the country. The food producer is not shy about its not-so-well-diversified portfolio, considering that they do an enormous amount of their business in eggs and not much else. However, they do produce several varieties of eggs, including your organics and your brown eggs. From their investor relations page, they mention that they are primarily engaged in the production, grading, packing, and sale of fresh shell eggs, including all platforms, conventional, cage-free, organic, and nutritionally enhanced eggs. What is interesting, at least to us, and on the rarer side of what publicly traded companies usually disclose, was an explanation of their industry's pricing impacts on the bottom line. On their investor relations page, they have a whole separate tab labeled volatility of egg prices so that they can properly describe to potential investors how the volatility of egg prices may impact their top and bottom line. CalMain Foods' operating results are significantly affected, of course, by wholesale shell egg market prices, which, as we've mentioned, they fluctuate widely. They are outside CalMain Foods is control. This is something we talked about on the program about a month ago as shell egg prices have gone down significantly in the last two years. As a result, they say on their website, and I quote, our prior performance should not be presumed to be an accurate indication of future performance. Small increases in production or small decreases in demand can have a large adverse effect on shell egg prices. Low shell egg prices adversely affect our revenues and profits, end quote. And Leighton, I think their latest quarterly earnings certainly show and bear out the impacts of those low shell egg prices we're seeing across the country currently. Really, Trent, I'm telling you, it's not going to be a function of demand because I think egg demand is at its highest and you see a very large variety. If you go into your local Costco or local Kroger store, you're seeing all types of eggs taking up more shelf space than they ever have before. So one would think that would really tie into that top line revenue and you would see increases for such a large, massive producer in CalMain Foods who does have a diversified egg portfolio. But you see, top line revenue totaled only $274.6 million. This was down from $303 million that they ticked in last year. But they did manage to top analyst expectations of $269 million. So analysts have already been seeing a very healthy egg production industry. And they were already kind of tallying those marks. And looking at CalMain is not bringing in as much revenue as they did last year because of those pricing effects. And CalMain, for their part, that transparency you noted, Trent, they're extremely smart. And this at least tells the consumer and everybody else involved, all the stakeholders outside of the business, that they are very in tune with the egg market. The shell egg market is a very large market inside the United States. And when you do the very vast amount of volume that CalMain does, you tend to be in tune with the market, but they know that there is an intimate relationship between the pricing and the demand and the supply as it relates to their top line revenue. And you see that is where they missed this year. And that really does affect their net income portion 
of their income statement where they managed to lose much more money this quarter than they did during the fourth quarter of last year. CalMain reported in a net loss of $24.55 million, whereas last year they had a meager loss of just $376,000. And if you relate that to the earnings per share side of things, you see that this was a representative of a loss of 51 cents per share, well below analyst estimates on the call for a 22 cent per share hit. You see, for the full year, the picture gets seemingly worse. Obviously, it was the fourth quarter they were reporting on. So we see the full year's results versus last year's top line revenue for CalMain Foods was actually nearly cut in half versus last year's results. And you see for the 53-week period ending June 3rd, 2017, net sales for the company came in at $1.07 billion compared with $1.9 billion for the prior year period. So the company also reported a net loss of $74.3 million or $1.54 per basic share, whereas last year they reported $316 million of net income, a positive gain for them last year, and $606.56 per diluted share. So you're seeing that net income really is tied in closely with top line revenue. You see in a very mature industry such as the egg industry, an industry that you could say at least from the grocery sector, is a commoditized one. It's not one that's growing. It's one that's in a mature state. So you're seeing that margins, even in a producer such as CalMain, are going to be very slim. But with that being said, the higher the revenue, still the higher in total net income the company is going to get. So if you reduce that, you're obviously going to reduce that net income by a proportional percentage if not by more, because you're seeing such a varied market in the egg industry. A lot of up-and-coming producers that are selling to now Whole Foods and Sprouts that are smaller entrants but are taking market share from these bigger producers. So you look at the overall market. Why is it expanding? Why is it so healthy right now? Well, Dolph Baker, chairman and CEO of CalMain Foods, stated that the egg markets have been affected by increased production levels as producers have repopulated their flocks after the 2015 avian influenza-related laying hen losses and the younger, more productive hen population has produced a higher number of eggs overall and that market demand trends have not kept pace with these production levels. A healthy market, less bird flu overall means actually lower prices in the long term because you have more eggs to bring to the market. So this is an interesting dynamic and trend. This is something you had touched on on a recent episode of the Food Focus podcast where you were really delving into the dynamics in this industry and that something such as avian influenza can actually help them as far as the net income side of things in the business. In aggregate, the bottom line will be bigger if the company's top line revenue is higher. And that's what we were seeing during the avian influenza issues is that egg prices went up because demand was relatively static. However, supply was not. And according to Baker, that's exactly what CalMain's main issue is. Prices have fallen over 15% for the quarter year over year. And this is borne out also in the USDA data for shell eggs. Less top line revenue means less total profit, but it also hurts the reinvestment of the firm long term. And what's worse is the trend is continuing onward with the company reporting that customer selling prices were down 42% versus 2016. So things could get worse 
before they get better for CalMain Foods. However, they did, during this earnings call, release multiple areas of focus. Most anything aside from conventionally raised eggs is considered specialty in this industry, and they said that they wanted to focus on the specialty egg business. This could mean anything from cage-free eggs, which a lot of companies are beginning to transition to, to organically raised eggs, to eggs for which the nutritional profile has been boosted in some way. Management sees opportunity for growth across all of these channels. This has been their strategy now for the last several years. Management said that specialty eggs managed to account for over 22% of their total sales volume for this fourth quarter for which they released earnings. But despite the fact that it only accounted for about 23% of sales, specialty egg revenue was 42% of total revenues for shell eggs compared with just 40% of the fourth quarter fiscal 2016. So this means that if demand can go up for these specialty eggs, this is actually a way to boost both top and bottom lines, despite what many consider to be downward trends in the white traditional shell egg industry. One of the other areas of focus is simply doing better and streamlining their operations. Grain, which is one of the major inputs for CalMain Foods, was down, or grain prices were down, due to that market's relative production strength as well. So not only eggs, but also things like wheat and corn, you're seeing production strength there up and prices go down. So they have fewer input costs, which is certainly a good thing considering they're not bringing in as much total overall revenue. Their feed costs per dozen, and by this we mean per dozen eggs, this is down 3.8% compared with a year ago. The overall question is, should the analysts and shareholders stay calm regarding CalMain Foods? Well, calm, which is actually the ticker symbol for CalMain Foods, fell over 8% on Monday after the news, but quickly rebounded. Shares fell from $37 per share to $34 initially, but ended Tuesday around $37 per share, right about where they were before the earnings call came out. Shares experienced all-time highs around $60 a share for reference in October of 2015. This was, of course, shortly after the avian flu scare hit most of the U.S. Their current market cap is $1.69 billion, but certainly as they continue to transition towards specialty eggs, you might be able to see some white space or at least some runway for bottom line growth for the company. And as we transition, we're going into one of our favorite fast casual restaurants. This with Chipotle as they disclosed positive metrics, causing shares to slowly regain from recent losses. The chain actually recently reported earnings on Tuesday, and the chain did well with the financials. But the story is actually transitioning to more of growth opportunities outside of their existing business. Company management, including CMO Mark Crumpacker, stated that the company needs to evolve their brand. And with this earnings call, Trent, we noticed that there was a lot of interesting information, a lot of clarity given to some recent topics we've actually covered here on the Food Focus, including one of queso and then one that we've been talking about for quite some time something that a lot of analysts have been proposing a lot of activist investors or a lot of wannabe activist investors with the drive-through concept a lot of other quick service restaurants are trying to evolve their franchise into having a drive-through location one of record was pi 5 who's recently announced this year that they're going to pilot some of those locations along with these details the company also discussed some recent safety measures and recent protocols that may have been broken by company management leading to that recent norovirus outbreak in Virginia. But we'll get to that a little bit later. 
with that piloting of the drive-through locations, they're talking about locations in Ohio, which really has been a hotbed for innovation for Chipotle. Obviously, they're headquartered in Denver, Colorado, but they've made a lot of new concepts, a lot of new ideas happen in Ohio. Most recently, their Tasty Made Burger Joint actually does exist in Ohio, and a lot of other concepts are piloted there. You talk about a lot of innovations they had dating back to also the chorizo, but evolving has less to do with sustaining their current business and more with expanding their customer base. They're saying that they want to actually try to get new customers into their stores, not only those ones that have fallen off from the 2015, the late 2015 E. coli scare. So a lot of interesting things happening with the company. While they've certainly been bringing back those customers, and we'll see that through the reported same-store sales numbers, but you'll see that it is clear that they really have lost some longer-term traction in the market for those longer-term, those core customers. And in a quote from Mark Crumpacker, he said, We know many of our lapsed customers are waiting for a reason to return to Chipotle, and new items are an ideal way to spark the necessary interest. And with this, you see that Queso in the earnings call is reported to be rolled out in 350 locations by the end of the year. This was actually just talked about by us as being piloted in several locations, but it seems as though that has gained momentum. But along with that, so have their numbers. So let's go over the numbers from this most recent quarter. Revenue rose 17.1% to $1.17 billion. And of course, because we are still doing year-over-year comparisons to impacts from the E. coli scare, you're going to see significant pops in a number of these numbers. The revenue numbers going up is a function of both more restaurants and increases in traffic, but it's still a $20 million miss according to Thomson Reuters analyst consensus estimates. They made last year $998 million in the same quarter. That compares to $1.17 billion in this year's quarter. That traffic helped to boost same-store sales 8.1% year-over-year. And we, as far as the hosts of this podcast, were looking for double-digit increases in the neighborhood of 10 to 11%. Many analysts were averaging around 9.5% same-store sales increases. The 8.1% obviously missing on both marks. Profit and operating margins, though, were up significantly over last year as pricing increases and slightly more efficient processes paved the way for the Chipotle to take home more money. Net income came in at $66.7 million or $2.32 per diluted share versus their profit from last year's same quarter of $25.6 million or $0.87 cents per diluted share. This is where the biggest Wall Street beat came for Chipotle as analysts were eyeing $2.18 per share. Chipotle beat that by $0.14 cents per share. Restaurant-level operating margins also moved to 18.8% from 15.5% a year earlier. That's an enormous jump as the company used fewer buy one, get one offers and more conventional advertising means. Overall, we took a look at the company's vibe during this entire earnings release. Management addressed not only the evolving business model with the drive-throughs and the queso, but also with industry fundamentals. Through the conference call, the word service was used often 
And Steve Ells said in a statement on Tuesday that recent events show that Chipotle has a long way to go in terms of improving operations. We've discussed in the past here on the podcast the separation in kitchen operations is having helped streamline both online and mobile orders and help that throughput out much in the same way that McDonald's has done. But management statements appear to be related to more health and safety protocols and not efficiency of that back room. Ells said they needed to have better oversight when it comes to the integrity of their food which has been the foundation of the business. And of course, here they are referencing the recent norovirus outbreak that took place last week in Sterling, Virginia. Ells mentioned that they conducted a thorough investigation and they found actually that someone was working while sick, which was a violation of company policy. And the suggestion from the company is perhaps that this employee may have been forced to work while sick or encouraged at least to work while sick. This was in line with what had been reported from those closest to the situation last week. A self-identified Chipotle employee alleged in a Reddit post last month that a manager required them to work while sick, and others have said now that after this most recent outbreak, managers have been more strictly enforcing the health and safety policies which Chipotle put into place after the first health scare took place a little over a year and a half ago. And this is where you can kind of see that Chipotle has hamstrung themselves by limiting the staffing numbers at certain locations while their hiring still has been pretty robust. Their staffing overall on a per-location level has been more lean than where it was about two years ago. Efficient staffing can help the bottom line, but it can also hurt morale when an employee gets sick and that someone has to be called in and work on short notice. Additionally, that Chipotle can go shorthanded if an employee is working while sick or worst case scenario, which is what we see here, an employee actually goes to work while sick. And some of this, of course, can be driven by management, but also you have employees certainly worried about money. I know that when I was coming up and working in retail jobs as a teenager, the last thing I wanted to do was call in to work sick because I needed that money. So it's not only on management, certainly, but also on employees to understand that reporting to work while sick can have a lot of negative PR. And in Chipotle's case, can actually erode their market value by about $1 billion within the span of a day. Absolutely. And with that said, Chipotle reporting the nervous outbreak, the news was very large. And this was something that you and I were discussing. Shouldn't have been necessarily that big because every day there's a food producer or a restaurant reporting some sort of health safety violation. And with this, with Chipotle's long storied history now, we can say long that it's almost been two full years since the first news of the E. coli outbreak came out. You see that a lot of media outlets were kind of being dramatic about This one Chipotle, this sole Chipotle location shutting down for two days. But a lot of analyst statements were saying and kind of agreeing with us that they were pretty sure that this would not have gained the national exposures the way this story did with Chipotle if this would have been another operation. You can see other QSRs, other fast casual restaurants reporting something similar to this does not make national media headlines. It certainly doesn't come into our news feeds as often as something from Chipotle would. A lot of the times, it is just a neurovirus outbreak. It's nothing crazy like an E. coli outbreak or something like salmonella. And they said through extensive testing, they did not find either E. coli or salmonella in that one location. And Chipotle, for their part, did sanitize that location for the two days that location was shut down. It actually recently reopened on July 19th, having been closed for those two days. But you're seeing that it's unclear how many cases were confirmed 
that was actually linked to that Chipotle. I was reading some reports that were saying over 130 people got sick. However, some other reports were saying only two to three actual confirmed links were declared from that location. So a lot of interesting news, and you can't always believe what you read on the internet, although it is safe to say something was going on in that location that was making customers sick, having had that location shut down. But for the future, it's going to be imperative for managers to really communicate with their store workers, Trent, because as you said, every paycheck counts when you're someone going to college or you're still in high school. Every paycheck is important to you. And honestly, this is one of the things that needs to be communicated in that it can have a very large groundbreaking effect if something like this happens again. You see how much those shares fell after this was reported. And this is something that Chipotle simply can't take time and time again. Analysts from The Motley Fool were right in saying that something as big as the E. coli outbreak could do Chipotle in for good. And I think that that's true even with this norovirus outbreak having related just one location Something like this is extremely important and something that shareholders have been reliant on. They want the executive management team to come in there and have the right protocols in place to make sure these types of things do not happen in the future. But as far as the shares, as they were affected by this last earnings call, they rose about 3.5% in after hours trading on Tuesday, but actually remained flat overall in early trading on Wednesday. And you see that shares are way down compared to the price just three months ago from around $500 a share in May to around $346 a share as the company was making announcements saying that they need to do better as far as customer service and bringing back in customers through conventional advertising campaigns. And then the norovirus outbreak hit in that sole location. So a lot of bad things that are built into the share price now, again, around $350 a share, a very low point. And if you look back and see the average price of Bill Ackman, is around $400 a share. So if you're someone who wants to try to get in there and seize a long-term opportunity for Chipotle that has faith in the management there to right the ship, now would probably be the time to get in. From a closed Chipotle location to a court decision, we stay in Virginia for a final or maybe not so final and promise follow-up on Kroger versus Lidl as a U.S. District Court judge in Richmond surprised some with a fairly quick ruling on this case. The ruling came as both parties had seemingly hastened the gathering of evidence. The lawsuit all stems from a June 30th filing on behalf of Kroger and as we predicted, Kroger would have to provide evidence in the form of consumer surveys to have to prove out the likeness between Kroger's private selection marks and the preferred selection marks by Lidl. If you're new to this case, basically Kroger is suing Lidl over trademark infringement because Lidl has a private label product or a private label brand that is remarkably similar to Kroger's. Now, the intent of the branding we thought was going to be highlighted as both sub-brands represent each grocer's private label brands that offer proposed value and quality at a lower price point. Most trademark cases can take over a year, but some actions by U.S. District Court Judge John A. Gibney Jr. struck down a motion to force Lidl to stop using their trademark and set a bench trial for January 2018. So we'll talk about what this means here in a moment, but first, in a very succinct statement that sounded like a ruling more from the Federal Trade Commission than a judge, Gibney said, and I quote, I think the public interest lies in competition, end quote. Now, he alluded to the idea of more open markets, but also said that the logos on their private label goods look somewhat alike, which 
is honestly a different assessment than the one we came out from because we thought the marks, especially the fonts, didn't look tremendously alike. So this is interesting and perhaps something to put in the back of your head in regards to this case. However, Gibney also said that a slight likeness has nothing to do with one taking away from the other's meaningful or literal intent. He noted that the words preferred and private have contrasting definitions. So there are a number of different possible impacts here, but first let's look at the arguments from each Kroger and Lidl. And you see from both sides, the corporations brought in company executives and expert witnesses. And for Lidl's side, they brought in their U.S. president and CEO, Brandon Proctor, who testified on Tuesday saying that their trademark goods in question are actually a small percentage of their overall product mix. And this is something you and I had discussed, Trent, because Lidl's product mix is very important to note here because a lot of the product mix, 85 to 90 percent, which is reported by the company themselves, is actually of private label goods. They come from different sub brands that have that different valuation. They have a different price point, but they do try to offer a little bit something different as far as branding and advertising is concerned. And this is the one thing we didn't know the exact details on because of the preferred selection that Lidl carries, how many of the overall private label goods are they made up of? And so with this testimony, you can actually delve in and see exactly what that percentage is. And this was cleared up by Proctor as he noted about 160 products of about the 2,600 private label items in each store are actually from that preferred selection. And you and I, from all the news stories that were coming out about this lawsuit, were assuming that it was probably up around 40 to 50% of their total private label goods. This was something that was really pushed in the media as something that Lidl had pushed all their eggs into this preferred selection branding basket. However, Proctor went on to say that they wanted each product to look individual and stand out from the market. So what Proctor here is arguing is that the product mix is actually well diversified and the preferred selection is not at all taking away from the private selection that is offered by Kroger in such a vast, larger way. It's not as though they're trying to take those Kroger customers and trying to deceive in some sort of way. But this is interesting in that it makes the mark even clearer that they're not relying solely on the preferred selection brand. And Lidl said that the lawsuit was attempting to do what many analysts have said all along, simply slow down and disrupt the growth of an emerging competitor in the United States by throwing what they called unfounded copycat claims. And I think this is interesting because by contrast, Kroger's private selection marks, Trent, are on a ton of products. This is truly something for Kroger's part that they have put a lot of time and energy in, something we had noted in the past over 20 years with this sub-brand. Kroger's private selection marks are on over 1,000 different products and are in the majority of Kroger-owned banners, including Ralph's, Dylan's, Kroger, King Supers, Fred Meyer, and so forth. Also in contradiction is the fact that Kroger does put forth a lot of resources, as Leighton mentioned, over 20 years of marketing into the private selection brand as their leading private label brand in stores, including top-facing headers on their advertising inserts. And they've even devoted a website to finding items under the label throughout their over 2,200 stores. That website is privateselection.com. Testimony from Kroger's VP of 
corporate brands offered little in terms of offense. He relied on the brand strength, but not much on how it would be interfered with. Both sides did bring in outside help in testifying about the results of each independent consumer survey study about the trademarks. It was not clear if any of these presentations made a hearty impact on the judge's mindset and subsequent ruling. Now, this bench trial we speak of in January will enable both sides to produce even more evidence and get additional expert witnesses to plead their cases. The main goal here will still be to persuade the judge, of course, as their type of case will obviously not immediately require a jury trial. But one other subplot here is that if Kroger does go on to eventually win the trial, this is several months longer that Lidl will be able to sell these private label goods that might add to overall damage charges when all is said and done. If Kroger does win the case versus if they were to pull the products off shelves now. So that is something to watch. Not saying that Kroger will win the case or that this will cost Lidl money in the long term, but it is interesting that a current verdict in Lidl's favor might eventually end up costing them money in the long run. We've reached the final segment of the Food Focus podcast. It's a segment we call What We Ate, where each Leighton and I talk about an item that's new to the world of food or new to us that we tried out over the last week. And we begin with Leighton. I went into my local Costco and they had an in-house rebate, sort of an instant savings for Blue Diamond Almonds. And this was of the smokehouse flavor. And if you look on the bag and look at the ingredient list, there's definitely much more than almonds in here, just more than almonds and salt. They have several different oils, but then also natural hickory flavor, yeast, hydrolyzed corn and soy protein amongst other natural flavors. This is a product that really does have a smoky flavor and this is something that I often shy away from. Any sort of nut with a different flavoring on it, I try to avoid because of the artificial flavorings in it. And you see with this, this does have corn maltodextrin, but overall it's a fairly natural product. It doesn't say all natural, so I hesitate to say all natural, but this is something that is irresistible to me. I had a handful of almonds, which is probably more than the 28 that serving sizes allotted. But you see, if you look on the nutrition facts, those ingredients pertain to nutrition facts that encompasses 150 milligrams of sodium and about one gram of sugar along with six grams of protein. But you're saying that the total fat is all pretty much made up of the almond itself coming in around 16 grams for again that serving size of around 28 nuts but if you like something with that smoky hickory flavor this is it this is something i highly recommend and with that coupon i paid only around 11 dollars for a massive bag of these almonds around 45 ounces or 2.8 pounds to be exact they call it smart eating i don't know if it's exactly thoroughly healthy or as healthy as just a plain almond but this is very irresistible, very tasty, and I highly recommend it at that price point at least. I tried out a product that's relatively new to the line for Ken's Foods, which is the number three manufacturer of salad dressings in the U.S. behind Kraft Foods and Wishbone and those companies there. And Ken's Foods is actually fairly unique because they are still freestanding. They haven't been picked up by a giant like the likes of Kraft or Smuckers. And they actually handle manufacturings for other dressing companies like Newman's Own. 
But I tried out a line of dressings called the Simply Vinaigrette Dressings. This was born out of my desire to find an Italian dressing or a Greek dressing that didn't have sugar as an ingredient in much the same way as Leighton tries to eat healthy. I tried to avoid sugar in my salad dressing. First, I tried the Italian and then I tried the Greek. These were in containers of 16 ounces for a price point just under $3. And I came away from each with glowing reviews. The Italian had a robust Parmesan flavor, while the Greek had notes of sage and thyme in it. Both were excellent, and what's more, neither one had that sweetness that you sometimes get from store-bought bottled Italian or Greek dressing. For that reason, I do recommend the product, and I think it's interesting that Ken's, which I assumed was owned by a larger conglomerate, is still independent, and they do have that number three ranking in terms of salad dressing sales in the United States. Again, that's the Simply Vinaigrette line from Ken's Steakhouse. I have not tried the balsamic, the Caesar, or the olive oil and vinegar lines of this Simply Vinaigrette, but I'm sure I will in the near future. That'll do it for us on the Food Focus podcast. For Layton, I'm Trent saying so long until next week. On the upcoming Retail Focus, a number of earnings results as we have kicked off earnings season. So we hope to see you on the Retail Focus podcast later this week. Make sure and follow us at The Food Focus on Twitter. If you've got a story idea or want to reach out to us, find us at retailpodcast at gmail.com. And of course, as always, subscribe on iTunes if you like us, rate us. We'll see you next week. This has been the Food Focus Podcast. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. For more information or for past podcast episodes, visit us online at retailfocuspodcast.com. Also, follow us on Twitter at The Food Focus for news in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. Thank you.